What if you were asked the question, what is your defining feature? Your defining feature. Would your mind, given those words, would you quickly go to a physical feature? Like thinning hair? Maybe it's the color of your eyes. Or maybe you'd go maybe a little deeper than a physical reflection. Maybe you might think in terms of an ability or a skill or a capacity that you have. Your, your defining feature is your golf swing or, or your ability to engage others in conversation. Or maybe you'd strip it down just a little bit below that as well and you go into some kind of character trait that you have that your defining feature might be integrity or loving kindness what is your defining feature? When we think about God and his defining feature, we actually have quite a list to choose from. We could say, well, you know, God's defining feature is his love. Because, you know, in the Bible it says God is love, and the story of love is, is just all over the whole of the Bible. That's got to be his defining feature. But then you start thinking and go, well, it could be God's faithfulness. God is trustworthy all the way through. Without God's faithfulness, where would we be? If God were finicky and moving from one thing to the next, we would be lost. It's got to be his faithfulness. You see, whatever God has as a feature, it turns out that God does it at a God level. So any one of his features could be his defining feature. You could say it's holiness. Holy, holy, holy are you, O Lord of hosts. Is it his otherness, his, uh, the fact that he's just, he defines what it is to be consecrated? The verse that I just mentioned, that holy, holy, holy are you, O Lord of hosts, is followed by the phrase, the world is full of your glory. This word glory is an interesting word. You see, it's, it's a word that, in a way, kind of collects all of the other um, features, all of, all of the other characteristics of God, and, and it describes them by its impact. And this morning, we're going to talk about uh, this idea of glory. We're actually beginning a new series this morning, and it's in John chapter 17. Um, and what we have here in this chapter is a prayer. Some people have called it the Lord's, Lord's Prayer. Um, some have referred to it as the High Priestly Prayer or the Prayer of Consecration. We have this extended prayer. And we might ask ourselves, I think it's a fair question, how could the writer of John's Gospel, whether it was John or some of his disciples or as they would gather his writings, the, the author of this, of this Gospel, how, how would they have known what Jesus actually prayed? And so people talk about such things, and they say, well, maybe it's simply because of his personal memory that he, that the author or the one who helped disciple others who would author this, that, that there was just the telling forward of personal memory. And maybe, maybe it was the resurrected Jesus who came alongside the disciples in that post-resurrection time and, and just said, hey, listen, as I was approaching the cross and we were finishing up that upper room discourse, I, I, here's what I was asking of the Father. 
Or possibly it could be because the disciples were in conversation and they remember, hey, do you recall the things that Jesus always underscored? You know, that, that he said that he was praying these things for us. And maybe there was a, a community of conversation. Or maybe the writer here is empowered by the Holy Spirit to capture these words. That the Spirit led the author into providing us this prayer. And that the Spirit worked over time in the putting together of Scripture that we would have this prayer before us. Or maybe it's a combination of all of those things. Regardless, we have this prayer in Holy Scripture. A prayer that is um, given to us, that would reveal to us the very heart of Christ as he entered into those final days of his life. One of the things that we notice is that this is a prayer that's different than the Gethsemane prayer. If you look at Mark, Matthew and Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that you find that Jesus, uh, af um, after he had uh, an upper room experience, he leaves with his disciples, and they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're in the garden, and Jesus goes off by himself, and he prays to the Father, would you take this cup from me? Let this cup be removed from me. And this, this prayer where he's still fully committed to what's going forward, but you get that sense of anguish. That's not this prayer that we see before us. One of the things to note as we enter into the prayers, we enter into the series, in verse 1 it says that Jesus lifted up his eyes. That's kind of a, a, a way that people prayed. This is, uh, we can look throughout Scripture. If we look back into Psalm uh, 121, verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Or um, in Psalm 123, 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. The lifting up on, of eyes. Even Jesus has already done this in John's gospel. In the story of when Jesus goes to the home of his friends, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus has died, and Jesus is going to bring him back to life. And, and as he arranged to have the stone rolled away, it says about Jesus in 1141, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He has this posture of prayer. And then we find also, in, as he starts to pray, he uses these words. He says, um, Fa Father, the hour has come. And maybe your mind's already gone there. Maybe you're, you're thinking John's gospel, the hour has already come. And your mind's going back to chapter 2. Do you remember the story in chapter 2 of John's gospel where, where Jesus is at a wedding? And his mom comes to, to him. And, and uh, Jesus' mom comes up and says, you know, they're, they're out of wine. They've run out of wine. And his response is, woman, what does this have to do with me? And what does he say next? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. So here we have at the beginning of John's gospel his biological mom. His, his biological mother coming to him and saying, you know, they've run out of wine. And, and Jesus' response is, listen, this isn't the time. I'm not to be known. I'm not going to go public in the, in the way that I think you're talking about here. I'm not going to go public. It's, it's not my hour. And now here, just a little bit before the cross, Jesus turns toward his heavenly Father and says, Father, the hour has come. And so what you find in this passage is that this 
prayer has three parts to it. There's the son prayer in verses 1 through 5. There's the disciples prayer in verses 6 through 19. And there is the church prayer where Jesus goes, I don't pray just for my disciples that I've had here, but for all those who will believe through their testimony that there's the church prayer in verses 20 through 26. So today we will be looking at the son prayer. And what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to look at, um, we're going to discover one request twice stated, one request twice stated. We're going to quickly look at five items of context, and then we'll look at one application. So one request twice stated. In verse 1, this is what Jesus says. He says, Father, glorify your son. And then down in verse 5, he says, Father, glorify me in your presence. Glorify your son. Glorify me. Here's where we come to that word glory. Glory. In the Old Testament, uh, it's an English word translating an Old Testament word in a, in a New Testament word, a, a Hebrew word and a Greek word. And the concept that we get from Scripture about what glory is, it speaks of God's weightiness, His, His worthiness, that there is something to God that is just utterly significant. His, His very being, as God reveals Himself in this world, we experience His worthiness. You take all of His holiness, you take all of His love, you take all of His faithfulness, you take all of His features, and what we experience is the worthiness, the weightiness of God. It turns out that this prayer of Jesus then, where He says, Father, glorify the Son. Demonstrate the worthiness of the Son. Reveal the worthiness of the Son. Work in such a way to where, where the worthiness of the Son is shown. Would you would you show the weightiness that the Son has as well? And there turns out to be a local application to this. So that Jesus' prayer is actually a prayer for the next few days. Je- Jesus is asking God that as he's approaching the cross, that, that God, would you work your hand upon me in the situation that is going to take place here in the next few days, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and maybe even some days after that into the ascension. God, in the midst of all this that Jesus already committed to to going through, God, would you work in such a way that these moments, this going to the cross, and by the way, the juxtaposition, where from a world standpoint, the cross is of utter humiliation. And yet it's going to be the place where the glorification of the Son occurs. A local, a local application, but there's also a transcendent application. Not only is this for that moment, for, for those days and the days to follow, God, would you work in, these, in this context, but there's this greater prayer that's connected with it too, and a transcendent application. There's a passage we've mentioned um, many, many, many times uh, in this room. It's one of those passages that it's just great to at least commit um, uh, the, the book it's from in the Bible, and maybe the chapter, maybe the verses as well, that it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And let's, let's receive that this morning because it talks about the transcendent application of this prayer of Jesus. Paul is encouraging humility among the Philippian uh, believers. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the second person of the Trinity's downward journey. And then we find Paul writing, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That is the transcendent application of Jesus' prayer. Father, glorify your Son. Father, glorify me. Locally, right now, in these days, in the next work that I'm going to do, would you glorify me? Father, would you glorify me that I might be in that position along your side? Would you work all these things out that every knee would bow, every tongue confess? And by the way, not only is it right for the Son to ask, it is the Father who alone can accomplish this. It is that working of the Trinity that we talked about last week that, that we even proclaim today in, in, in our creed that, that the Father and the Son in this relationship, that the three persons of the one God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, this glorification relationship. Father, glorify your Son. Father, glorify me in your presence. It's that time, that hour, Maybe a more colloquial way then to say this might be that this is kind of a divine way of saying, let's do this. Let's do this. It's here. It's now. Let's do this together. All right, so if that's the one request twice stated, let's take a look at these items of context. You know, you could hit the pause button here and join us at the end of our conversation and and still be fine. But what Jesus does here, not only does he make the request, but he gives these points of context for the meaning of this request, the, the significance of the request. So let's just, we'll quickly run through them. We find the first one in verse one. Jesus says, Father, uh, glorify your son, but he then goes on to say that the son may glorify you. Father and son working in the crucifixion, in the resurrection, and in the ascension. Glory begetting glory. This is the eternal work of the triune God. You know, we know in our culture, we know in all cultures, we can look through history where where we go, gosh, the ideal is that the family is always for one another, that mother is for father, that father is for mother, that father is for daughter and son, and son and daughter for father, and son and daughter for mother, mother's for son and daughter, whatever the mixture of the family is. Maybe it's a group of friends, and that that in true friendship, that, that friends are for one another. We know that that ideally in churches, that we would all be for one another, that, that we would seek each other's well-being, that we would love one another, that, that as people looked at our relationships from outside the church, they'd go, that's something different, that they would love one another. And yet, we also know reality, 
We know in our relationships, families, friends, churches, that we experience brokenness. We, we are born into brokenness. We, we inherit brokenness in our families. We, we experience sinfulness, our sinfulness, the sinfulness of others, and our relationships then get messy, and so families get messy, and, and friendships get messy, and churches get messy. But it just isn't so with the Trinity. The Son and the Father suffer no brokenness, no sinfulness, no pridefulness, no greed, no envy, no gluttony, no just anything that leads to messiness. They don't suffer that. And so if we look at our first context point, what we find is that this, this trinity, this eternal singularity that is, it consists of three persons, this one God in three persons. It's a relationship in which the Father and the Son glorify one another. Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. It's exactly what we should be expecting. This is no Thor who, after a series of events, starts to eat a little bit too much, and, and his brother Loki, who is never to be trusted, and it's not that kind of a relationship. The features exist eternally, love, faithfulness, holiness. All right, that's context point number one. Context point number two, verse two. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given them. There's at least two things to gather from this. The first is this. Jesus's localized humanity did not limit his globalized authority. His localized humanity, the fact that he was born into a place, that, that the ministry he was about really didn't cover more than 60 or 70 miles, that, that that's the distance he walked, that, that uh, from one end of the ministry to the other end of the ministry is really pretty contained. And yet even though it was localized in the Middle East, there is a globalized reality to his authority. In fact, beyond the globe, to all of the cosmos, his localized humanity did not limit his globalized authority. In fact, we know in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus goes, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Jesus says to the Father, glorify me. And he cites as part of that context in which he's going to be glorified, listen, I have all authority. You've given me all authority. And he goes on then, the next part is to look at that if he has this authority, what is he to do with this authority? It's that second part, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. It's just a small little topic, uh, predestination, um, which after the service, ask Joss. Um, <laughs> no, it is this wonderful, wonderful gift that the Bible is consistent from the beginning to the end, that God is an electing God, that God moves forward and God is the one who quickens hearts and brings people from death to life and gives them the gift of salvation. 
And here, Jesus is describing this, this relationship between the Father and the Son. Listen, glorify me. Look, you've given me authority. And the kind of authority you've given me is that I can extend eternal life to those whom you have given unto me. There's a passage in John that, um, uh, that has already occurred. It's in chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Listen, we know that there are so many other verses in the Bible that talk about a role that we play in saying yes uh, to the salvation that God offers us. And, and there's a big conversation we can have around there. But we know that the Bible just as clearly and plainly says that God is the God that moves first toward us, that God is the God who affects our salvation. And so Jesus is referencing that, that here, and, his, and the context point is, is look, this glorification, it's already there. The reasons are already there. I have authority. You have given me authority that I have authority to extend this eternal life to those whom you have given me. Jesus' request for glory fits his authority, and we benefit from it. All right, context point number three, from verse three. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Two, again, two things out of this. That one, one is we just see the names that are being used. You, the only true God. And Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ, whom you have sent. There's a, a, another passage in John already that Jesus has already covered what he means by this. It's a little bit longer of a passage, but listen. Here's what I want us to grab from this passage. Listen to the relationship between the Father and the Son and how Jesus talks about it. So Jesus said to them, this is from John 5, verses 19 through 24. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but pass from death to life. Did you hear that? Can you picture it in your mind? This request for the Father to glorify the Son, it's so appropriate to the relationship that they have together. The one true God in Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent, two persons of the one trinity. The other thing we can gather from this is the whole idea of eternal life. Eternal life, it turns out, has, is not as much about time or the length of the experience. Jesus describes it here as a relationship. This is eternal life, that you know the Father. 
that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ who the Father has sent. It's a relationship. Our eternity has value and meaning and substance and wonder because of a relationship. You know, in this world, we talk about the happiest place on earth. Happiest place on earth. I, used, I don't know if it's still now. It used to be the tagline for Disneyland, you know, or Disney World. Happiest place on earth. Come here, stand in a line, and pay $14.95 for a soft drink. Um, happiest place. There's actually a, a group of people that do this uh, world happiness report. They do it every year. They've been doing it for 10 years, and they have all these surveys, and they calculate, where's the happiest place on earth? Well, this year, it's Finland. They beat out Denmark and Iceland. <laughs> losers, right? We're, we're 16th on the list. Go number 16. Yes. Happiest place. The happiest place in this world and, and beyond this world, according to Jesus, is in a relationship with the Father. And this is eternal life, that you would know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. The one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Context point number three, then, is simply is that Jesus' sheep benefit from the shepherd's glory, and our salvation glorifies the Father. It's like this, this glorification explosion that we're all coming together in this, this eternal relationship. There's actually this passage we've mentioned before, too, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. God is at work bringing us from one degree of glory to another, and, and the Father is glorifying the Son, and the Son is glorifying the Father, and this is eternity, this relationship. I, okay, so uh, context point uh, number four comes from verse four. Jesus goes, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. If you're a fan of spy films, you know uh, of course, you know the name of James Bond, 007 movies. Then there's Ethan Hunt. Ethan Hunt that proves that all of his movies are misnamed. Uh, mission Impossible. <laughs> and then he goes about and, and actually successfully does the mission. So he's faced betrayal, the, the Chimera mission. Uh, there was the tracking of the rabbit's foot, the almost losing his wife. He, he, was, he had been disavowed by his organization. He confronted the syndicate and then went on to confront a subsect of, uh, of the, um, the syndicate called the apostles. Jesus just came and has done one mission. It's the mission of God to take on human flesh, die for all of humanity, pay for their sins, conquer death, and return and rule with the Father from heaven. Jesus is so committed to this mission that even before he goes to the cross, he can say to the Father, it's already done. I've already done the work. I've already accomplished the work you've given me to do. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So context point number four is simply that there is a penultimate and an ultimate purpose in what Jesus does on the cross. In, in, in the very work that he does, the, the penultimate reason, the next to ultimate reason is our salvation. But the ultimate reason is the glorification of God. God, all this be to your glory that you would be glorified in these things. Number five, quickly then, is verse five. Father, glorify me 
with the glory I had with you before the world existed. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is old glory. Now, I know Flag Sunday is, our flag, flag Day is on Tuesday, right? That's coming up this Tuesday, Flag Day. So we're not talking about that old glory. By the way, I looked it up online to see if there could be a story I could use in the service. It is so long. <laughs> I, had, I gave up partway into it, um, so we won't use that story. But here's the old glory. This is the old glory from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The second person of the Trinity, the, the pre-incarnate Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's the beginning of the story. Now glorify me, glorify me Father, with that glory we had before the beginning of the world. The prayer is a prayer of restoration. Jesus returning to that transcendent glory. Do you get the picture? Do you get this picture of Jesus praying for the Son? It's, a, it's a, a one request, twice stated, glorify me, underscore my weightiness, my worthiness, work in, allow me to accomplish these things. Bring us back to that shared glory that we had at the beginning, before the beginning of the world. Here's what we learn about this glory. It's a glory that is appropriate. In this context, these context points, it shows us, given who Jesus is and what he accomplished, this is an appropriate prayer, an appropriate glory. We also find out that it's a shared glory. It's a glory that is shared between the Father and the Son. And we capture up in there the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the triune God, that this glory exists in God. And that we also discover it's a gracious glory. It's a glory, then, that is extended through the offering of eternal life in an eternal relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So here's our one application. This week, would you acknowledge the weightiness of God? Intentionally, every day, acknowledge the weightiness of God the Father God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the one God, would you acknowledge His weightiness in your worship? That we gather here not simply to be encouraged or to talk with other people we know or to sing our favorite song, but we gather to acknowledge, to respect, to participate in the, in, in the shouting out of the glory of God, recognizing the glory of God. Would you acknowledge the weightiness of God not only in your worship but through your obedience? That it that this God who is who God is and accomplishes what God accomplishes, that in response to all that God has accomplished, that we would respond with obedience, acknowledging his glory. And then that we would acknowledge the weightiness of God with our hope. That our hope is not simply just, well, we hope it all works out, or, or I hope I get to heaven and have, but our hope is in the weightiness is in the God who is weighty, who is, is worthy of all glory. And would we then acknowledge the weightiness of God with our hope? So what is your defining feature? What is your defining feature? May it be for each one of us that our defining feature is that we know the Father, that we know His Son. And through the work of the Son, we know something of the glory of the Father. 
And when we see the Father and, and the Son together, when we hear of the Father and the Son together, we know of something of the, of the glory that the Trinity has and the glory that the Trinity welcomes us into in all of eternal life. May that be our defining feature. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you indeed are the God who is, that you are the God who is worthy of all glory, that the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father and that you welcome us into a, an eternal relationship with you. Thank you that you have heard Jesus' prayer and you have answered it in spades. And so, as your children today, we simply glorify you and we do this in Christ's name. Amen.